You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. The number, if you'd like to call in, is 844-999-9249, or you can email us at Let's Talk Torah, no apostrophes, Let's Talk Torah, at gmail.com. It's starting to feel like fall, getting a little cooler, kids raking the leaves, but uh, enough about fall. We have a special guest today. If you're a baseball fan, maybe, maybe not, he'll show you his 1984 World Series ring, worked as a photojournalist for the National Baseball Publications, and then in Detroit Tigers' front office, a baseball historian, but that is not why I invited Erwin Cohen down today. Erwin, how are you? Thank God. No complaints. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we can ask for. And, of course, before we even get involved, an uh, author of many books and a historian par excellence, but how did you get involved with the Detroit Tigers? This will go back until about 1973. I already had 10 years seniority in Wayne County Treasurer's Office, which was on the second floor of the city county building, today the Coleman A. Young uh, building on Jefferson and Woodward. So I was pretty happy there. With 10 years, you get four weeks vacation and facing Windsor and watching the boats go by, you know, when things were slow. And um, I was reading in the paper about Hank Aaron is chasing Babe Ruth's home run record, the all-time home run record. Then it was 714 home runs. And there was a call-in show on WWJ Radio every Monday night from 8 o'clock till 9 o'clock. And the host would be picking it up, how Hank Aaron's going to replace Babe Ruth. Of course, Aaron never hit 50 home runs in a year. Babe Ruth did it three times. And the fact was that Aaron was pretty much had more at-bats than Babe Ruth had in his career. So it wasn't really fair to say he could be the all-time home run champ when he actually did it by playing two more years than Babe Ruth with all those at-bats. So I wanted to point it out to him, but I was a little shy, so I waited a week and waited till the following Monday night when he was on the air between 8 and 9, and I still chickened out for three weeks. So finally, at three weeks, I decided to call about 20 to 9. I pretty much wanted to get him at the end of the show. But I was put on hold. There were a lot of calls, and the producer said, sorry, the show is over. But I said, okay, I really don't want to talk on the air. All I want to do is tell him that when he's talking about Hank Aaron becoming the all-time home run king, just point out that he had more at-bats than Babe Ruth did. So I'd like to talk to him. He said, okay. Hang on. So his name was Vince Doyle. He used to do the sports on WWJ. Nice old gentleman. And at that time, I was young. It was 1973. So I told him what I had to tell him. And I said, by the way, and this, by the way, changed my life at that time. 
And I said, by the way, who is your guest next week? Now, had I been on the air, we wouldn't have had time to talk all this time. So every week there was a guest from the sports world. So he says, next week we have Hoot Evers. I said, really? That's my favorite player. And and uh, Vince Doyle said, of course, today he's the minor league director of the Detroit Tigers, but very few people would remember that he played outfield for the Tigers. I said, of course I remember, number 14. I went to my first ball game and sat in left field right behind him because he was my favorite. And I saw my first game in 1950 as a very young youngster. And I was a little overwhelmed. I thought that the radio announcer will talk on the public address system. I didn't know that you had to follow the game without the radio broadcast. And I wasn't aware they even had grass on the infield. I thought it was like our playgrounds, you know, with uh, just dirt in the infield. So anyways, I followed Hootievers. He was my all-time favorite. So when I mentioned to Vince Doyle that he was my all-time favorite, he says, really? Why don't you come down to the studio and introduce him on the air? It would be a nice touch to have a fan introduce his favorite player. So I went down, and I had to write my first piece of, besides those forced school reports that everybody does. So I wrote my first piece on Hootievers, and was pretty easy for me, and I read it, and I was, I was sort of a, a mini star for a little bit, and then it was over, and then I, as I was leaving, there was an all sports TV guide on the desk that Hootievers picked up, and I asked Vince Doyle, "May I take one?" And this was a TV guide, a small thing, given away free to usually restaurants and bowling alleys. We had a lot of bowling alleys in the area at the time. And it was headed by none other than Denny McLean, who was recently retired at that time. And there was a sales manager, Dick Raditz, the former Red Sox pitcher, and they were working out of Berkeley. And they would just get advertising, and they would fill it in around the TV listings, and they were looking for a sports writer. So I called up the next day, and I said, I read the introduction to Hoot Evers. I wrote that. And Danny McLean said, yes, I was listening to that. And, and so I said, I'd like to come talk to you and, you know, some write for you. So I actually wrote, while I still had my job, naturally, for All Sports TV Guide, $15 an article once a week. And, but it did give me a little bit of press credentials to the Tigers, who were a very bad team in those days. And so I was allowed to, before a game, to interview a player. So when I look back on it, it was really not luck. It was really heavenly assistance. If I would have called one week earlier, my career would have never happened because the guest went to Ben Hoodievers. And if I would have called one week later, two weeks earlier, it just happened that I called three weeks after I intended to. And luckily, I was put on hold to the end of the program. So that changed my life. And then from then on, I went to heading a national baseball publication for five years and had clubhouse, credential, press box, and all the ballparks and World Series and All-Star games. And then another thing happened that was also designated from above. When I had my 20 years in with the county, 
Things were tough in Detroit at that time. It was 1984, just about, 1983, the end of the year. And they had a, a rule, you cannot retire unless you have 25 years and are 55 years of age. But somebody came in and was trying to get through, rid of the people that had 20 or more years in. And he says, anybody with 20 or more years, regardless of age, can leave. So that was uh, pretty good for me in my early, very early 40s. And then uh, I went to work for the Detroit Tigers, who knew of me. Amazing. <laughs> all, all, all out from heaven that you got to work for the Tigers, which, of course, for you as a child must be a, was, is a, a dream come true. And I, I got to tell you, in three or four minutes, you say more stuff about baseball than that I know at all. Because baseball, I like it. I like to play. Um, I followed it a little bit. I usually followed losing teams. I would listen to the radio and the Mets were just so bad. But for some reason, I liked them. Maybe, maybe we, I don't know, we have something about teams that lose. I have no idea. But we're going to do much more stuff than just baseball today. But for those who enjoy baseball, one, uh, certainly the Detroit Tigers, one of Irwin's books is all about the history of the Detroit Tigers. That's how I heard about um, the guy you're talking about. Hoot Evers. Hoot Evers, right, because the beginning mm-hmm. of your book. So I, I did some re- reading. But anyways, we got to talk about this week's Torah portion. It's Noah. It's the flood. It's the world being destroyed. I was actually happy that um, with the hurricane in Florida, usually every time there's a hurricane and flooding, everybody says, um, biblical proportions, that always bothers me, right? Biblical proportions means we're all under a 1,000 feet of water. But it's bad, don't get me wrong. It's terrible. And, um, but again, so Noah's busy. He's hoping that the world will repent, hoping people will recognize God's unhappy. He's building his ark for all those years. And for those who know, uh, maybe we can't talk about Bill Cosby anymore, but certainly his old piece on Noah making fun. But at the same time, Noah was building this ark so people at least would have an opportunity to figure out they've done something wrong. Do they want to repent? Do they care? Um, the world is just full of thievery, of robbery, of, of all kinds of just horrible lives. So I always like, especially when I bring somebody in who loves old-time Detroit, the history of Detroit, when you think about the time of the flood, of Noah, of building the ark, of how people acted. Does it ever remind you of any points in in Detroit's, whether Jewish or not Jewish, history? Well, the thing that I lived through was the 67 riots. And after a couple days, first few days, we weren't allowed to go to work. Pretty much everybody was housebound. And I remember the police walking in the nearby blocks, but they weren't carrying pistols. They were... Many were carrying rifles, long rifles. And then we had the National Guard. And at that time, I was in the National Guard, too, So, but I was never called up. And then, when we finally could go to work after a couple days, I took the Woodward bus, and there were tanks on the streets, still on the streets. And, of course, that facilitated certain flight from Detroit and I was never thought that I would see what happened in downtown in the last few years, the comeback of downtown, basically due to Dan Gilbert 
But now we have streetcars. The only bad thing I don't like about all this progress, when I used to go to a ball game, it was very easy to find a parking space. There were so many empty lots around. But now where I used to park, they have the Joe Louis Arena, and all these places are full and thriving, and then we're going to get more. And, of course, Dan Gilbert is building the tallest skyscraper in Detroit and the old Hudson site. And Hudson's was where I used to hang out in my lunch hours in the 1960s. I'd choose a different floor every day. But, uh, it was so big. It was a block long. They even had stamp. If you're a stamp collector, they had that. They had the photographic. Uh, one floor was furniture. It was just nice to see. Now, isn't part of Ford Field, part of isn't part of the old Hudson's building still part of Ford Field? No, that's their warehouse, okay, the Hudson's okay, warehouse. Okay. But Hudson's is right behind Campus Marshes. Oh, all right, all right. See, I'm not going to even start to guess or, or pretend to know all the things <laughs> happening downtown. But even though we talk about, just an interesting as an aside, we talk about the, the buildup of Detroit and what Dan Gilbert's done. And, and I've been down there a couple times. Obviously, the fundraiser, there's people's offices I go to, and people will play chess in the street. It's beautiful. And they've got guards and cameras and, and the, whether there's security on, on bikes. But when you get a little bit out of that built-up area. So when you say you, you never imagined that Detroit would build up, do you think all this building up of that, of whatever area we're going to call it, Campus Marsh, the other areas, but those people a few blocks away, certainly a few miles away, you know, it seems like they haven't recovered from those 67 riots. and uh... That's for sure. The main streets are pretty well shot. Where I was brought up on Dexter, it was thriving. A Dexter Boulevard, was where now all the mom and pop stores were everything you ever wanted you can find on Dexter. There were appliance shops. There sold televisions. They sold little uh, grocery stores. There were restaurants. Anything you wanted was on Dexter. Even the Dexter Show, the Dexter Theater, where I saw Samson and Delilah in 1951. Yes, we have something Jewish in there. Okay, good. Yeah. Thank you. So. Uh, those were the kind of days we had. We had a bus, but if you go down Dexter now, it's pretty shot, pretty empty, pretty burned out. And some of the side streets also, you know, you'll see a lot of burned down houses, unfortunately. But that's uh, northwest Detroit where we used to live when the, when the riots were on. That is coming back except for the main street, which is Wyoming Boulevard. If you go up Wyoming between 6 Mile and 7 Mile, there's nothing there really. Mumford High School has been redone, but where we used to have the uh, main shoals, synagogues, and um, our life went from Dexter to Wyoming, four miles apart or so, and that was the 60s. By the end of the riots, people were flooding to Oak Park, speaking of the flood. Ah, my, my home area. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, they talk about uh, what, Jewish flight, white flight, all those different phrases they use. Um, how many times did your family move from the downtown areas to keep moving up people out, obviously, in West Bloomfield and further? How many times did your family move in those early years? My mother lived in eight neighborhoods. I lived in four. I was spent my infancy in what was called 12th Street, now Rosa Parks Boulevard. Then we went to Dexter, lived on Tuxedo. I don't remember when we moved, but... I remember when we left it in 1956, moved a few blocks west to Leslie, still in the Dexter section, 
And then we moved to Wisconsin near Curtis, like six and a half mile in northwest, then in Oak Park from 68 on. Of course, we never thought we'd be in one place for like 50 years. Right, because now but, you're but in my 68, neighborhood. 68 was 50 years ago. So it was really it was really amazing. In other words, it went from people just every five to ten years you moved, and then you finally hit a neighborhood, which they call mm -hmm. the ghetto, mm -hmm. um, and you were there. So you, you've been in Oak Park for 50 years. Correct. Wow, amazing. In that same... In, same area, yeah. But not the same house. No, not the same house. Oh, okay, but just the, wanted to... Within walking distance of the original house. So with about a minute and a half, I wanted to throw one more idea at you. We'll have to finish it after the after the break, and then we'll get into some good Detroit history. Um, obviously, we everyone's familiar after the flood. The flood, the waters have come down. Noah's Ark is on a mountain, and he sends out the dove, and the first time it comes back, and the second time it has it comes back with the olive branch. And the olive branch has always become a, a symbol of peace. And again, as an idea... And I'll cut you off in about, I won't even give you, it's not going to happen. So I'm going to talk, and then we're going to do it afterwards. Um, the olive branch actually has two symbols. One is the, the olive, the, the fruit, the olive is not a sweet fruit. It's really more bitter. So the, the dove was hinting to Noah, better, better I get food from God, even if it's bitter, then it should be sweet, and I have to rely on a person. That's one thought I'm leaving you with. And the other thought, of course, is that the olive branch has always become that symbol of peace. And I was wondering if either of those two ideas relate to any part of Detroit history you can imagine. I'm here with Erwin Cohen, author of numerous books, knows Detroit history, baseball history. There's a song I figured you'd appreciate. So hold on through the break. We're going to be right back with Erwin Cohen, and we're going to talk more and more about Detroit, but not about the Tigers. I hope. We'll see. Hold on. We'll be right back. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our Nine and Dine special, nine holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. Advertising your business these days can be challenging. Traditional radio and TV ads are expensive and, frankly, a bit of a crapshoot. Not to mention, the audience for over-the-air material is shrinking as more and more of us demand to see and hear what we want, when we want. Advertising on new radio media is a solution. With our live streaming programs that are also available on demand, your message is always ready when your customers are ready to watch and listen all for a fraction of what you'd likely have been paying for other ads. NewRadioMedia.com. Call Buzz Van Houten at 248-939-9999 for more information. Hey, you guys, it's Raphael of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Guess what? The only thing we can get down here in the sewer is Skatetainment Weekly on New Radio Media. Turtle Power! Hi, I'm Art, and we're the crew at Tuffy Walled Lake. We've been in Walled Lake for 20 years, and through our knowledgeable staff and customer satisfaction, we've become quite the cornerstone in our community and to our discerning customers statewide. 
We know how important your vehicle is to you, and we take pride in our impeccable, affordable service. And we're trying to get you back on the road as quickly and safely as we possibly can. Please stop in and see why everybody comes from all over to get their car serviced at 784 North Pontiac Trail in Wald Lake. And we're back, and I'm joined by Erwin Cohen, author of Echoes of Detroit's Jewish Communities. Uh, I forget, baseball fan, full of knowledge, all about Detroit, baseball, history, you name it. You know, I had a friend in school where we studied, and he would, I don't want to say he made fun of, but his joke was, he referred to one of the rabbis that sat in the back. He says, you know, it's like a machine. You put a quarter in, and then he just starts giving you all the information you could ever imagine or not imagine. And Erwin, I feel the same way when I talk to you. So here we go. So we left off talking about olive branches. We talked about the olive branches is, is symbolic of peace. The olive branch is all symbolic that the dove is saying, I'd rather my food from God than rely on a person. And I asked you, well, how does that remind you of anything in Detroit history? Somehow I think it's going to refer to baseball. But go ahead. Right. Okay, it does. Because in 67, and we were talking about the riots, in 68 the city came together because of the Detroit Tigers. It went on to win the World Series then. So it was a very suspicious time between the whites and blacks at that time. And what happened was right the year after the riot, a few months later, when it was from spring training on, the Tigers were the best team in baseball and went on to win the World Series. So sort of a baseball bat became the olive branch. And it was a time that blacks and whites hugged in the street celebrating the World Series. I remember I was working, as I said, on the second floor of the city-county building, and we were listening to the game, the seventh game of the World Series. Back in those days, they were afternoon games and they were on radio and TV. They weren't ending midnights. And... So about 4 o'clock, we're listening to the end of the game from St. Louis, and the Tigers won the seventh game of the World Series. And we had great windows in the city-county building. So all of a sudden, people in the downtown we were watching the windows were opening their windows and tearing little pieces of paper. So it was like snowing paper from all these offices. <laughs> they made their own confetti. And, and when one person saw what was going on across the street, they did the same thing. And all over downtown that we saw, they were tearing this little confetti and letting it rain on people, and blacks and whites were hugging. And our boss came in and said, get out of here quick. So get out because he was afraid he, or get he, out he, and celebrate? Both reasons. You know, because you won't get home and this and that, and who knows what will be. But it was a very nice celebration. Unlike 84, my first year with the Tigers, they won the World Series. So I was lucky there, too. But in 84, they overturned some police cars. It was different because where Tiger Stadium was situated in those days was around a lot of bars. And the people who couldn't come to the games, they were drinking the whole game already. So they exploded when they came out. But in 68, it was a little different. When we drove home on all the main streets, kids of all colors, didn't even know anything about baseball. Older people gave you the V for victory sign. You would think that World War II ended. But that's how it was. That was the olive branch of 68. 
That is a great story. You see, really, you could have been a broadcaster because the beauty, again, I, I when I drive, I, I happen to enjoy listening to a baseball game, not because I care what's happening. I just like listening to the conversation between the play-by-play and the color guy, and they always have stories, the whole game. In between stories, somebody gets a hit, somebody gets out, somebody stole a base. But the, the storytelling is the beauty of the game. So and I can't listen to a hockey game on the radio when I'm driving. I can't follow, a, not basketball, not high. I can't follow. It's so fast. Baseball, maybe I'm older. It's relaxed. It's just two guys talking. Mm-hmm. So that's fantastic. Okay, but we, we got to get into some early, early Detroit Jewish history. We'll try as much as we could um, over the next segment or two. But I wanted you to share with us, I, I told you before, um, I guess you'll correct me, I'm sure, one of the early Jews um, somewhere in the mid-1800s, maybe 1840s, you'll tell me if I'm off, his name was Chapman Abraham, and he was captured by Indians. What happened? It's just a fantastic story. Who was he? What happened? Give us a, yeah, give us a, some background there. Some he was early originally Jews. from Montreal, and he came to Michigan. And uh, he ended up in Upper Peninsula. And then he came down to Detroit. And he was here about 1752. And, uh, of course, Detroit was discovered in, by Cadillac in 1701. So he became officially the first Jew in Detroit. And he was a real estate man. And he married an Indian lady. So you can say he was an Indian fighter. So... Okay. Only when he fought with so, his wife. So early intermarriage in those days right. also. Okay, fine, mm-hmm. I got it. But uh, he was very successful. But one time he was captured by the Indians. There were a lot of tribes, different tribes of Indians, and especially Pontiac was the worst one. I don't know why they named the city after him. Or a he was a real cutthroat, you know. <laughs> and so anyways, Chapman Abraham was captured, tied to the stake, and it was going to be burned. And... He started acting crazy. They thought the Indians have a lot of respect for crazy people. They didn't kill him because, you know, they think he was had something from the great spirit above. So they just let him go free and walk around. If you act crazy, or maybe he was, and uh, that was it. So he just uh, went on to be a successful uh, real estate person in the early, early days of Detroit before it was officially a real city. And he was buried in Montreal after that. Amazing. You know, it actually, did he share, first, did he share that idea that if you want to get saved from uh, from getting scalped or whatever else Indians did, that you just act crazy and they leave you alone? I don't know if he, if he shared it. Maybe yeah, he, he could have been crazy, too. Because it, it, it reminds me, you know, King David did the same thing, right? King mm-hmm. David when he was captured by one of the enemies, one of those surrounding nations. So he acted like a crazy man. And, and he was drooling, and, and they looked at him and he said, oh, forget about it, he's a fool, he's, he's worthless, why waste our time with him? And he escaped because of that. So you got to wonder if Chapman Abraham knew what King David did, but that was not in your book. Okay, but let's move a little further up in history um, so I, had, I obviously made a mistake. Chapman is in the mid-1700s, and mm-hmm. I was looking at the mid-1800s. So the first Jewish community, not too many people, 
we'll say a number 200, I'm sure you'll correct me momentarily, but the community was basically German Jews. Why, why were the Germans the first um, Jews that actually started developing the Detroit Jewish community? Well, actually, Ann Arbor had a minion of 10 Jews, which was in 1845. So Germans, Jews of German background would come to Ann Arbor because they were Christians of German background. So, and if they speak Yiddish from wherever they were from, the Jews wherever they were from, they could understand the non-Jews because Yiddish and German are very similar, of course. Of course. So then, uh, five years later in Detroit, the Cousins family, they spelled their name C-O-U-Z-E-N-S, Sarah Cousins and her husband came to Detroit, and they had five daughters. So uh, Mrs. Cousins would put advertisements in the stores of Detroit that they're looking for high holiday services for Rosh Hashanah, and men should come. So she had an, maybe another reason, the fact that she had <laughs> five daughters, five daughters. But 17 men showed up. They formed the Bethel Society, which now became Temple Bethel after many years, which is uh, on Telegraph Road. Sure. And so that's how Temple Bethel was born, from this little house not far from where General Eustace Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, was. Well, we're going to get to him soon. So, so they started out, I may say it wrong, they started out as an Orthodox? Correct. They started out Orthodox, but they, they, I don't, it didn't take them long. Uh, they actually became Reformed. Now they're, now they're certainly Reformed, but we're talking about this Reformed temple here in town. Its roots are back um, 200 years. The Orthodox rabbi died after two years after they brought him in, and he was a circumciser, a ritual slaughterer, a cantor, a teacher. So he did all these things for about $200 a year. So he died in the cholera epidemic of Detroit in 1854, which claimed a lot of people. And he's actually buried here in Detroit. And you'll see an old, uh, near Elmwood Cemetery, a piece of it is the original Bethel members for some of them. So what happened was uh, then they brought in a reform rabbi, and things started changing very, very quickly. So, Wait, so I want to say, why did why wouldn't they want to bring in another Orthodox rabbi? It was a money issue. It was a religious no, it issue. It wasn't a money issue, but many of these people, more people were coming in for a different outlook. They wanted not so much tradition. They wanted more freedom, freedom to uh, not keep things. So, of course, the reform disregarded this, disregarded that, and uh, that's what happened. So there was a civil war in 1861 in America and a civil war in the synagogue, too, as a lot of people formed uh, Shari Tzedek, which started as Which, again, is, a, is one of the—it's a conservative uh, synagogue mm-hmm. now, but also, therefore, has its roots. So there was a break, which, you know, we always joke, two Jews, three mm-hmm. synagogues, that's the right. synagogue. I don't mm-hmm. uh, pray it, right? We, mm-hmm. we know these jokes. But um, so you have Bethel, and they want to become more reform. And you have what was a break-off, which was Shari Tzedek. And again, I'm getting close to my break, but um, at least to get us started over here, um, did they, at that, at, in those in the mid-1800s, so Shari Tzedek was the Orthodox synagogue and Bethel was the Reform That's synagogue? Right. That's right. In 1861, Shari Tzedek started as Orthodox. The, some of the original people from Bethel wanted to maintain 
their orthodoxy. And some of the people went the other way, like politics. Like politics, like synagogues, what happens. So we're just about up to the break. We touched on Ulysses Grant. So we're going to talk about him when we come back. We'll talk about, again, the, originally it was uh, German Jews, became Russian Jews. We'll find out why they came over. So again, I'm Rabbi Tzvi, joined with Erwin Cohen, author of Echoes of Detroit. I can read it from here, Jewish Community History. And we're going to be back. So hold on. Yeah, we can mention it. Plus, the latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market, all by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. Hi, I'm Art, and we're the crew at Tuffy Walled Lake. We've been in Walled Lake for 20 years. And through our knowledgeable staff and customer satisfaction, we've become quite the cornerstone in our community and to our discerning customers statewide. We know how important your vehicle is to you, and we take pride in our impeccable, affordable service. And we're trying to get you back on the road as quickly and safely as we possibly can. Please stop in and see why everybody comes from all over to get their car serviced at 784 North Pontiac Trail in Wald Lake. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our 9 and Dine special, 9 holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm David. Join us for fun and adventure on our new show, PodQuesters, where we fight through imaginary battles and pray to the dice gods for good rolls. Yes, it's an epic, sweeping adventure. We try to fulfill our destinies without driving the Dungeon Master crazy. I thought that was the point. Anyways, check us out here on NewRadioMedia.com, Fridays, PodQuesters. See you there. You know, even in our quick breaks, I'm learning more history than I ever imagined. And I liked history in school. I couldn't remember anything, but I liked it. So we touched on, you know, towards the Civil War area, and of course one of the famous Civil War generals, Ulysses Grant, if I'm pronouncing his name right, actually came from Detroit. But I was reading in your book, again, Echoes of Detroit's Jewish Communities is one of Irwin's Many books, you can get them in Jewish bookstores and Borenstein here in town. You can go online. Don't pay the $104. I don't know, unless unless that goes to you straight. Somehow on Amazon, the same book is $20, and someone thinks they can get like... No, just go to Bornstein's on Greenfield, north just of 10 Mile. Just go to Bornstein's on Greenfield and 10 Mile, north yeah. of 10 Mile. Great idea. Um, or get it the way I got it, because Owen gave it to me. But in any case... Um, so we're talking about Ulysses Grant. He was not, I guess, a friend of the Jews. There were certainly many Jews during the Civil War from the Detroit area that enlisted. 
but uh, it sounds like uh, General Grant wasn't so kind to them. Originally, he's not from Detroit, but he was stationed in Detroit before the Civil War. And he was known as one of the town drunks. He would get arrested for, he would, uh, for speeding. He would drive his horse on the sidewalk, on the sort of the wood sidewalk and sort of the street. But I have to interrupt you. So in those days, you could get arrested for driving a horse when you were drunk? Sure. That's cool. Drunk okay. driving. I did not know there was drunk driving on horses. Okay, mm-hmm. good, fine. Go ahead. So back Especially to... if you were driving on the sidewalk and not on the those little uh, dirt streets. Well, I'll actually tell you, I didn't know they had real sidewalks either. It was, you know, we remember the, the Western, so it's just one old big dirt road area. But I guess there's a thoroughfare. Mm-hmm. See, thank you very much, R.D. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Okay, so Ulysses Grant was not from the better citizens, but clearly... Was a uh, was a uh, was a wartime genius. Right, he was stationed at the Detroit garrison, and uh, then, of course, in the Civil War. Uh, but he was really not a friend of the, known as a friend of the Jews, because Abraham Lincoln had to rescind one of his proclamations, and uh, against uh, Jewish merchants. And so, what happened was, when he became president, he really repented for that. His wife said he always was sorry for that. You talk about Grant. Grant, okay. right. And he became probably one of the president's best presidents who was a friend of the Jews at that time. Really, but but as a general, in what way as a general was he anti-Semitic? Well, we'll talk two things about him. As a general, he won a lot of battles because he actually took a lot of losses. That's number one. But uh, he was a great general, and then when he won a battle— President Lincoln said to his other people, find out what Grant drinks and send all my generals a case because he was a winner. Okay, good. But you didn't tell me how he was anti-Semitic. Okay, so what, there was some kind of law about uh, selling cotton. And uh, so he had some Jews who were mixed up in this illegal sale of cotton. And uh, it wasn't all Jews, of course. But then he blamed the Jews for this. All you need is a couple of them in there. And uh, he actually barred them from dealing with him, and he wanted to bar them from certain things in the army. So when Lincoln found out about it, he rescinded that. So therefore, Jews and Detroit Jews were allowed to be part of his army. Well, any any this was not in Detroit when he was uh, he was already. Stationed oh, so far this was from all, Detroit. This was all Jews. Yeah. This was not just when he was here. Yeah, yeah. He fight. banned all Jews, all Jews at that time because a few were mixed up in some illegal sales of cotton. So, but he blamed the Jews for that. And I mean, it's an interesting thing to think about. I mean, if a person's a patriot, he wants to fight. I understand. There's a lot of people that when they're drafted, and um, my father was. I'll probably talk about that uh, next week. But a lot of times when people are, are being drafted, if there's some excuse that we're not letting you fight, there's a lot of people that will say, okay, I'll, I'll accept that. But uh, it seems people were not so happy that they weren't allowed to fight. But uh, in Michigan, the Jews were the only ones that had more than one person per family serving in the Union Army. Wow. But there weren't so that, that was, many Jewish families, to be fair. There was, there was well over 100 in Michigan, well over 100. And uh, there was more than one per family. Well, that's amazing. They, did they even let more than one per family? Sure. 
right? The Israeli army, yeah. they have their rules. If something mm. happens to one child from a family, then everybody else goes home. But in all the wars, the Jews were World War One, World War Two, the Civil War. The Jews served more numbers than their population. Interesting. More than the percentage of their population was the percentage of Jewish soldiers. But you said that Grant as president was very good to the Jews. Very good. In what way? Well, he first of all, he always repented for that. He was sort of a hothead. Maybe okay. as he became president, he uh, wasn't as hot-tempered as he was before. And who knows, maybe uh, some alcohol could have formed his opinion, too, when he was general. But and then he realized his mistake. Of course, uh, Lincoln had to help him realize it. Okay. But after that, he really he had a lot of Jewish friends, and Jews were always welcome at the White House, and he sought the uh, opinion of many people who were Jewish. But do you have is there anything specific that he did to show? I mean, Israel wasn't obviously as a country wasn't in existence, but in what way he was just good to the Jews? Meaning that he was going to be sure... sentimental to them Fine. always. You know, think you know if they have problems, he tried to help the best he could. Cool, amazing. Okay, so in our short time, as we move along, eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, and again, you wrote down the eighteen seventies. The Jewish population was all of uh, five hundred seventy. Um, we we're not going to have time for the social clubs, but certainly you write in your book that the first uh, Jewish social club was created, then called the Phoenix Social Club. We're going to scoot by that. But then the Russians start to come to town. What happened now that Russians are starting to come to Detroit, or maybe to America for that matter? What, what was happening in Russia that all of a sudden, the, 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 unlike the Germans who came earlier, the Russians waited to start coming? What happened? There was always pogroms. You know, they weren't safe. And uh, the soldiers, the Cossacks, uh, when they would get drunk, they would raid the Jewish villages. And there was a little animosity between the German Jews of Detroit and the Russian Jews. The German Jews were already established here, and there were more from, uh, they knew what opera was and reading books and all this, and now we're talking about mostly Russian farmers who were coming to Detroit. So they sort of looked down at, on them in that time. I mean, that would be, it doesn't have to be Russians, that would be any time that you have one part of society who says we're... We're cultured, and you are not, and therefore you make us look bad is almost what it sounds like. Right. You only look bad in terms of uh, not being savvy. Not being savvy or not being cultured? Not cultured and cultured and savvy, you know, that kind of thing. They, Of course, they quickly became uh, very savvy in the ways of America. They caught on pretty quick. But when they come in first, they didn't speak the language. Of course, Yiddish. Everybody knew all Jews, unified Jews, but they weren't the kind of people, you know, that uh, would be, as you say, cultured, that would appeal to the established Jews of Detroit. So the Russians actually made, it sounds funny, they made their own shul, I think, what was it called, the Russia shul, is that how you pronounce right, it? Right, mm-hmm. What was that? So that was, which shul was that? That was B'nai David? Who B'nai, was that? Beth David, which became... B'nai David. Okay, B'nai David. Then they had their own little, like we call them, Stiebels. Right. Uh, so so they, they weren't fancy people like the German Jews. And the German Jews were big store owners in Detroit in those days. The Russians were, were different. They had to work uh, for people 
you know, sweep the floor kind of people. Of course, they worked their way up and did very well, too. So this I didn't notice, in the at least in this book, the Echoes of Detroit's uh, Jewish Communities book, but um, was there a difference in, here's one of my made-up words, in the religiosity? In other words, as the Germans became more Americanized and more, you don't know, like this word, culture, um, and they seemed to, with the Bethel and eventually Shari Tzedek became, instead of Orthodox, Reform and Conservative, were the Russians more religious or yes, it didn't matter? Yes, they, they were. For the most part, yes. And you ever wonder what the reason was? No, I, I, I don't know. That's a very good question. As a historian, mm. that's mm. what you get to mm. investigate, right? Mm. Everybody knows history, mm. but can I add something to the history? But I wonder if there's what to be said that, the, at least early on, the Germans were wealthier. They were the Correct. businessmen. They were wealthy. And then automatically they became less religious, and the Russians come, and they're very poor, and they stayed poor for a while, and therefore they stayed more religious. But perhaps, I don't know, what happens when they start to become, that's the next book. Erwin, when you go down to Florida and you enjoy that warm weather, since you're on the east side of Florida, so you don't have to worry about hurricanes right now, um, you'll, uh, when you're basking in the sun by your pool or whatever you swim in. Um, I don't you, even swim, believe it or not. I never stuck a toe in the pool. What about the beach at least? I, so, I drive by it. You drive by it. He goes down to Florida, <laughs> not the beach, not the pool. Okay, so when you're thinking, this is, I, I say I gave you a homework assignment as a teacher. Right? You're going to figure out what happens when they come, they create communities, become wealthy. Do they automatically become less religious? It's uh, something interesting to think about in my few minutes left. But uh, some things happened were not as pleasant. And that was the caloria, if I'm pronouncing it right, that epidemic yeah, was the in cholera. the 1890s? Cholera? Cholera. That was like in the 1890s, right? But there was one earlier in 1854. Right, that was before the Russians came. But the one in the 1890s, when that took place, and to give people an idea, how many people died in those type of epidemics? First of all, it I can't give you a number unless I reread my book. Well, but the, but, uh, but a lot. Sure, a but lot. we're not talking very, about like twenty or thirty people. Yeah, we're talking thousands. Big, yeah, many, and, many thousands. In World War One, also in Detroit, people were walking around with uh, they would wet cabbage and put it on their heads to keep really? cool in the summer because it was so hot, and also there was a big epidemic around. Well, how did the lettuce help you from the? It the, cools you. I've never tried it. But, uh, I mean, so being cool, you were protected from the disease. Yeah. Okay, I get that. Okay, no, no problem. But, um, but it seems they blamed the Russian Jews. Why? They didn't. Well, first of all, the anti-Semites blamed the Russian Jews. German okay. Jews did not. It was just the non-Jews because they didn't want these people coming in. They were dirty. They weren't cultured. This is from the non-Jewish press uh, that were writing about the Russian Jews coming to Detroit. They didn't want them there. They didn't want even German Jews. They didn't want cultured Jews. They didn't want Jews. But especially the ones who really didn't know anything. They figured, they, what are they going to contribute to the city? Uh -huh. So it became an excuse. Because you write about how it's amazing how they could get away with it. But the newspapers were full of, uh, of all kinds of characters and making fun of Jews, I'm sure with the hooked noses. I mean, they do the same thing sure. today. But a paper would have a harder time today getting away with That's what right. they wrote about those Jews. How'd they get away with that? Well, we're, if you go back even to the 1940s, to 1947, I was just reading an article 
that was printed in 1947 about Jackie Robinson, who wrote Baseball's Colorberry. Sure. And after they had a couple uh, players, of, of black players, they would call them color boys in articles in the newspapers. I can maybe get away with it, because I know we're up against the break, and... We're going to be back. Certainly when we come back, we're going to be joined by my friend, Dr. Jonasen Goldson of Ethical Imperatives, and he'll give us his quick little blurb on what's happening in the world, and we'll finish up with Erwin Cohn when we come back. So hold on through the break. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our nine and dine special, nine holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. At Murray's Park City, we're known for offering customer service you won't get in any chain store or online. But don't take it from me, just listen to what our customers have to say. The employees at Murray's are knowledgeable, courteous. They make you feel like you're at home. Pick up a can of Seafoam Fuel System Treatment for only $6.99 or a 5-quart container of Mobile One Motor Oil for just $28.95. Murray's Park City and Pontiac Trail at Maple Road in Walled Lake. We've got the parts you need when you need them. The latest LiftMaster garage door openers and the toughest retractable screens on the market. All by the push of a button. Tarno Doors is celebrating its 50th year anniversary and is the recipient of the 2016 Subcontractor of the Year from the Home Builders Association. Tarno knows doors. Tarno knows doors. Do you want to see things like this? Did you just say you died? <laughs> <laughs> well. I mean, technically. Or maybe even something like this. We'll do nothing but destroy your corpses and burn them all for my dogs. Your dogs are gone. And sometimes, a little of this. We need to have a talk. <laughs> I take my axe and I smash it. No! <laughs> and check out Podquesters, the show where we tackle ghoulish goblins, fiendish foes, and dangerous tricks. Oh, like the singer? No, the dragon creature. Oh. Anyways, Podquesters, Fridays, only on NewRadioMedia.com. And we're back in our last segment, and time is flying. Alyssa, are we good? We are good. We are joined, as always, by Rabbi Yonason Goldson of Ethical Imperatives. Yonason, how are you today? Well, Rosh Hashem, how are you, Ritzi? Good. I, you know, I read your, or I liked, or whatever I did for your uh, most recent article. I'm not sure if that's what you're going to talk about, but uh, now that the clock is ticking, we'll find out. Go for it. Okay. Well, victims of Hurricane Michael might not appreciate the connection, but it should make us pause and wonder that the most powerful storm to hit the Florida panhandle in history made landfall during the weekly Torah reading of Noah and the Great Flood. One of the strangest aspects of the story of Noah is how, even when God promised after the flood that he would never visit such destruction on the world again, Noah was not comforted until God showed him the rainbow. Why wasn't God's promise alone good enough for Noah? Before we answer, we have to explain the flood itself. Why did God destroy his own handiwork? Why not find another way to put an end to man's violence and corruption? In the 
simple answer is free will. God created the world so that we can earn our eternal reward by choosing the path of good over the path of evil. But in order for our choice to be truly free, there have to be consequences for our actions. This is why God sometimes allows the wicked to prosper while withholding reward from the righteous. In the generation before the flood, mankind had become so corrupt it was on the brink of self-destruction. In order to preserve free will, God had to save mankind from itself by hitting a cosmic reset button and starting over with the last righteous man on earth. But Noah was not satisfied. What if mankind became corrupt again? Either God would have to destroy the earth again or allow mankind to destroy itself. Either way, what had been solved? The answer is in the rainbow. It is the sign of the human potential for good, our capacity to learn from our mistakes and transform ourselves into better people. When Noah saw this inspiring sign of hope that God had placed into the world for future generations, he was encouraged to believe that no matter how bad people might become, mankind will always find its way back on the road to redemption. And with that, I wish you a very good Shabbos. Yeah, he said, thank you as always. I know we're off next week. I hope we'll speak in two weeks from now. Be well. Bye-bye. Okay, that was Avionis and Goldson of Ethical Imperatives. And as we're moving along, Jake, I forgot to check, but you got my poster? Jake, thumbs up. We, every week, Erwin, um, we do a different letter of the Aleph Bays, and I have to have our word of the week. This week I have two. So our letter is Ayin, if you can see it behind me. Um, the letter is Ayin. It has that, um, I guess, like a slide and then like a, another straight line going up at an angle. That is the That letter has the numerical value of 70, which, again, is interesting in this week's Torah portion because the God, um, by the uh, Tower of uh, Babel, when he has to spread out the world, there's 70 languages. So it's an interesting number this week. And uh, the words I picked this week are ani, which means poor, and usher, which means wealth or wealthy, which is, I think, a, a good way of looking about cities and the circle that cities go through and some of the amazing history we've been talking about about Detroit, where people come, they come as poor, right? We all know what it says on the Statue of Liberty. If we don't know, just pretend you know. Right, But we start out poor, we become wealthy, we build our communities. Unfortunately, Detroit's gone through really cycles where the communities have collapsed, communities have been rebuilt. So that's my words this week. Poor, wealthy, uni, usher. I just think it's a good connection. Again, the number 70 is fantastic. That's our word of the week. And we only have about two and a half minutes. So, Erwin, I appreciate your time. And as I told you, with, with all your knowledge, things we've been talking about, um, the floor is yours for about two minutes. Any good stories, baseball or not, you wanted to leave us with? Okay, we'll go back to 1954. And I was... Uh, Before I was born, thank right, you. And I was a Boy Scout, a very young Boy Scout, called the Young Israel Detroit Boy Scouts. And we had a camp out on a place north of 8 Mile on Schaefer, which is now Coolidge. And it was nothing there. Everywhere in every direction I can look north, emptiness. And there was a big sign that said, coming soon, the world's first shopping center, Northland. And we said, who would want to come here? Who would want to live here? There's nobody here. And that became Northland. We never thought north of 8 Mile would be so built up as it is. The Detroit population in 1954 just about hit 2 million. Now it's below 800,000. But it still has the same metro with 3.5 million. 
just that people went to the suburbs. So if you hang around life long enough, you see a lot of changes. Okay, that is that is just like well said. That is true. There's it, when we when we get to stay in one place, and I mean we tell it to the kids all the time, right? They're all very smart when they're like twenty or eighteen, and then they get a little older and they actually start to talk to us and find out that you've seen this before, you've been in this situation before. So if the kids are smart, they ask us for our experience. If they're not so smart, they want their own experience. You know, usually the smart people figure out that they do better um, with uh, learning from other people's experiences. It's much cheaper and certainly not so painful. But our show is wrapping up. And really, Erwin, I'd bring you back in a couple weeks for the next few pages of your book. But you like to enjoy the warmer weather of Florida. I like to sit under a palm tree. You like to sit under a palm tree. So you're going to be under a palm tree. We're going to bring you back, but not until after the winter. So those who enjoyed Irwin, we will bring him back, but you're going to have to wait till the winter. As always, I have to thank everyone, our wonderful sponsor, listeners. You know I couldn't do without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team, Drew, Jake, Alyssa, RD's back this week. I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on New Radio Media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.